Well, we're back in our Sermon on the Mount series now, so if you want to turn there in a Bible, please do join me there. We're in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, and I will read the passage. We'll put it up on the screens also, but I'll read the passage and we'll pray and then get right to work. So this is Matthew 5, starting in verse 13. It reads like this, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word together, we're praying that by your Spirit, through that word, you would speak to each and every heart that is here and is watching online. Help each of us to know this incredible vocation that you've given us as believers. Help us to be salt and light in this world. And help, help that to result in people glorifying you. Lord, we pray this, please, in your precious name. Amen. Amen. I've been wrestling with a question now for at least a year, probably much longer, but my question is this. What, what role does Christianity have in improving a society? How can Christians influence society? I have wrestled with that, but I also am thinking along the lines of, what does it look like to faithfully engage with culture, especially when Christianity is decreasing numerically? So Pew Research, P-E-W, they have done a bunch of different studies, and one of the ones that um, has been on my radar for a while now, but they've done a study where they've been tracking religious affiliation in the United States, and they tracked it from 2007 to 2014, and then they've updated it more recently to 2019. And I guess the, the results of the pandemic are to be determined, but the trend is pretty unsettling. In 2007, 77% of people in the United States would affiliate with Christianity. And then over the course of those years, it has de decreased dr dramatically all the way down to 65%. And um, at the same time, they're tracking people who have no religious affiliation. There's a correspondence here. The one's going like this, the other one's going like this. And the no religious affiliation has gone from 16% all the way up to 27% now. And so what you have is less and less people claiming to be Christians and more and more people saying, I'm not a Christian, I, I don't even know what I am, I'm nothing. I have no religious affiliation. And so what role does Christianity have in society, especially if Christianity is in a decline, numerically speaking? What does it look like for us to influence society, especially when eventually, I suppose, we would be a minority? We, we wouldn't be able to say, hey, we all think the same way. And so as, as, as long as we can get everyone kind of in agreement of what that means, then we just kind of turn out and vote and things go our way. What happens when we're in a minority and that's no longer an option? How, how can Christians engage productively in the influence over a society in which they reside? Now, um, the answer is not that confusing. In fact, it's not 
unique to our situation even. Throughout church history, Christians have often been in the minority of a society. In the first century, in fact, they were a very small minority, just a band of followers of Jesus Christ that were, that were afflicted and persecuted, and yet Jesus was teaching them, here's how you are to interface with the world in a way that would change it. And so that's what we're going to find here in this Sermon on the Mount, here in this paragraph, Jesus is teaching us, here's what it looks like for Christians to engage productively in influencing society. And it's very plain. He says, here's what, here's what you're to do. He uses two metaphors. He says, here's what you're like. Here, here's who you are. And he basically just says, be that in the world. Be who you are in the world, and that will, in fact, change the world. And that means that if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to understand what he has done for us and who we are as a result of it and what it would look like to productively interface with the world. So let's look at the metaphors. The first one is salt. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Think about that for just a moment because sometimes we just distance ourselves from from the text. But imagine Jesus standing up here today saying, hey, you, you are the salt of the earth. Like you, you are the salt of the earth. If you're a follower of mine, you actually are this kind of person who's going to do something in the world. You are the salt of the earth. In his crowd in that day, it would have been just a bunch of ordinary people. Maybe some of the religious leaders were on the fringes, but he's looking at regular people and he's saying, look, if you're going to follow me, I'm going to give you this incredible vocation. You're the salt of the earth. Now, now, commentators have kind of argued about what does he mean there? Because salt can do a lot of different things. And so there have been as many as nine different proposals of what salt was used for in the first century. And he doesn't tell us here, so I think anything that salt could be used for is fair game. Whatever salt could do in that society and whatever would come to mind for his audience, I think is fair game. So let me just share with you at least two of the main ones that I think are significant. Now, salt in the first century was a preservative. They didn't have, uh, they, they didn't get their regular email. I don't know if you get these. I don't know why I get so many of them, but so many people email me about appliances being for sale right? Best Buy, Lowe's, Home Depot, H.H. Gregg, like all these different companies are like, hey, Core, guess what? We've got appliances. I'm like, I have those already. Thank you very much. But they always let me know there are appliances that, you know, you can just put your food in and it keeps it cool and preserves it in that way. You could put stuff in the freezer and you can keep it for a very, very long time. Well, they didn't have that luxury in the first century. They didn't have appliances. They couldn't just take the meat that they had and put it in a, in a freezer and say, you know, we'll deal with this later. So they would have to use other things to try to keep that meat. They would take salt and they would rub it into the meat to make it, uh, to preserve it. Salt was used in that way because meat would, it would decay, right? It would rot. Uh, Ash and I, we're, we're really weird. We're not, by no means, we do not cook well. We don't, we don't like make a bunch of different dishes. But when we're making stuff, we're always like, we open it up. Does that smell right to you? <laughs> Which, by the way, don't smell meat. That's just a bad idea to begin with. But we're always like, this is weird. And we look at the date that's stamped on there, you know, sell-by date, and we're looking at that stuff. Um, but, you know, we have, a, we have a refrigerator. 
So, so we have a refrigerator and dates stamped on our stuff, and if it's not good, we just throw it away. But in the first century, they would massage salt into the meat to preserve it. Salt was a preservative. Um, I mean, I, that was true back then. It's still true today. You can go to places in the world where you go to an open market and there's fish there and they're just sitting, you know, sometimes on a, on a bed of ice, but oftentimes they're just rubbed with salt and they're just there. There are flies kind of swarming around, but that's meat that has been preserved in that way. So let's think about that then. If, if salt is a preservative and Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth, what's your role in society? Your very presence is meant to prevent the decay of society. Now, that's a weird concept, but it is telling us that we, by nature, by our presence in society, we have the ability to prevent social decay. Things going, getting spoiled. Things becoming rotten. Now, um, we can argue about whether or not you think that's true, that society is getting worse and worse. Uh, there are some ideas out there that basically say, the, you know, the more modern we become, the more enlightened we are, the better society gets. But I think that's hogwash. Like, I look at the world and I just go, you just track what's going on. And yes, there are common graces and good things that are happening. And Jesus will teach us about that in this sermon. There, there are common graces. There are good things that are going on in the world. And they're found in all kinds of surprising places. But on a whole, when you look at the morality of the world, when you look at the human experience, it does have a tendency to go bad. It does tend to spoil. But Christians are able to be these agents of preservative in culture and in society. Our very presence indicates that God is at work. And we should be able to help prevent the spread of sin. There are other things that do this as well. Government, in fact, is supposed to do this. It's supposed to prevent people from making very, very poor choices, and it does that to some degree. The family institution is another feature that's preventing things from going very, very poorly. Our conscience, God has given us a conscience, so we, don't all, we, we make bad decisions, but we don't always make bad decisions because sometimes our conscience will prevent us from doing that. But Christians in society are meant to be salt. We are the salt of the earth, and we are supposed to be preventing society from unraveling. Now, often, we don't like that society is going bad. So let me, let me share this quote with you from John Stott. He, he points out a significant thing here. He says, when society does go bad, we Christians tend to throw up our hands in pious horror and criticize the non-Christian world. But, we should, but should we not rather criticize ourselves? One can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. It cannot do anything else. The real question to ask is, where is the salt? We look at the world and we go, why is everything unraveling? Why is everything going so poorly? And we're critiquing and criticizing. Sometimes we're even criticizing other salt. We're going, churches should be doing this and Christians should be doing this. And we're throwing up our hands in, in pious horror and criticizing the world. But the truth is, we should be asking, why aren't we doing something that would change this? Kind of like we talked about last week and the previous week, there are issues in our world that we actually have to roll up our sleeves and get invested in. There are things that we, we can't just sit here and talk about it. We can't have little debates about what that would look like. We actually need to figure out, what does it look like to get up from our seats and to be sent out and to actually help the society in which we reside? 
so that our communities here in the state line are better for us having lived here. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. You are the salt of the earth. It's a preservative. Secondly, it's a flavor, right? It's a seasoning. You put salt on stuff and it tastes better. We were having popcorn the other night. It was a brand. It was like an off-brand. And we were eating it. And I was like, this tastes like cardboard. Like, this is bad popcorn. So what do we do? We take it back over and you doctor it up. You just put way more salt on it and more butter and, you know, all that other good stuff. But then, then you start eating it and you're like, oh, this is actually pretty good because the salt is there. It, it, it makes things more savory. You can put it on all kinds of things, right? I, until I got married, I didn't know this. I love pizza. I didn't know you could salt pizza. My wife taught me that one. I am so grateful for my wife. An awesome little slice of pizza that I already love. You put a little salt on it. I love it more. Salt has that ability. It has the ability to make things better. Even like watermelon. Whoever thought, you know what we should try here? Let's put a little salt on a fruit. But you do it and it is amazing. Salt has this ability to go into a scenario and make it better. That's what you're, you and I are supposed to do. We are supposed to be this feature about the world that wherever it is that we are, things are getting noticeably better. People are recognizing, hey, there's something good here. There's something good going on here. And Christians are by nature supposed to have that feature about them. So when you go to work tomorrow, people should not be rolling their eyes going, oh, great they're here. Uh, this, this person, they've always got an axe to grind. They're complaining about stuff. They're kind of lazy. You know, they, they, they don't really carry their weight around here. And the whole morale of the team goes down. That should not be the experience that people have when they come into contact with Christians. If that's the case, something needs to change. We'll talk about that more here in a minute. But we are the salt of the earth. Our very presence should be an indication that things are going to get better. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is after here. But he gives us a warning. This is who you are, but if you fail to do this, it actually makes you worthless. This is his words, not mine. Look at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything. Or another way that that phrase is translated is worthless. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Salt is supposed to do something. If it's not doing that, then it's not really salt. Now, I know if you're a scientist, you recognize salt can only actually be salt. He's not, he's not making a scientific claim here. He's making an ethical, moral claim. He's saying, look, Christians are supposed to be doing this. If you're not, if you're not, then, then you're not being who you are intended to be. And you were good for nothing. You, you were no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So Christians, this is not like an optional teaching. Like, okay, you can be a regular Christian or you could be a salty Christian. You get to choose. You can just kind of play it cool and just kind of fly under the, under the radar and you don't have to, you know, really let anyone know that you're a believer and you don't have to exert any good influence on the world. No, Jesus is saying, if you're my follower... You are the salt of the earth. If you're not being salty, then you're not being who you're intended to be. And there's not really a use for you other than to be thrown out. The stakes are pretty high here. Jesus is saying this is what Christianity 
is intended to look like. We are to be the salt of the earth. Secondly, he tells us that we're like light. Look at verse 14. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, light is this reality that is shining forth goodness, and it's useful in all kinds of different ways. Now, again, it's one of these things that we just kind of take for granted, right? You're going to be at your house tonight, and it's going to get dark outside, and what are you going to do? You're going to flip a switch. Wow, wow, light's on, right? And you're not even going to think about it. You're just going to do it. And then you're going to go about your business, and and you're not really going to give a thought to the fact that you have light in your home. I remember one of my first trips to Nairobi, Kenya, and we went to a slum, and they have these little huts, and uh, we were working with a school that's right on the edge of the slum, and they walk back in there, and they go to their, their different homes, and they do have electricity there, but it, but it is very primitive. It is like live wires running from hut to hut, and it's inconsistent, and really, a lot of people can't afford it, so can you imagine paying your, your utility bills on your hut, and you're like paying for you know, the water that you have to hike over there and the electric that, that, that you have this live wire running into your home. Well, the, the kids there, to do their homework at night, they purchase these little candles. So if they have a homework assignment, they have to figure out how to get enough money to go get one of these candles to bring it back to their house. And then they sit around the candlelight to do their work. You see, that's, that's valuable. Light is valuable. And we take it for granted. But light is intended to shine in a way that's helpful, in a way that's productive, in a way that reveals what's really going on. And so we are supposed to be the light of the world. We're supposed to be shining in the world in a way that reveals the goodness of God. We are actually supposed to help people know what Jesus is like. Over and over again in the scriptures, Jesus himself refers to either himself or people speak about him in this way. He is the light of the world. Jesus is light. And we as his followers are intended to represent him. So when they look at us, what should they find? The light of Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be revealing that. We're supposed to be doing things in a way both with our speech. I think we ought to be talking about him, but how we're living And like I mentioned before, how we're working and how we're doing our relationships and all these different things, all of that is meant to result in people being drawn to the light and finding him to be beautiful and helpful. But again, there's a warning on this metaphor as well. Look at verse 15. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. So you're supposed to be light, like a city on a hill that's a reference point, that's kind of like a moral compass that's beautiful, that you can can look at and you can go, there it is, that's a Christian. And you're supposed to be like a a lamp that's lit, that's helpful, that's that's illuminating everyone in in the house. But be careful that you don't light your lamp and put it under a bowl, because that would be foolish, right? Why on earth... So let's go back to the kid in the, in, in the slum of Kenya. Why on earth would a, would a child go through the trouble of finding a candle, finding the resources to purchase that candle, bringing it home, lighting it, setting it up, then taking a bowl and putting it on top of it? That is insane, right? That just doesn't make sense. Now here's the question we have to ask then. Why is it 
that Christians are supposed to be the light of the world, but instead of shining forth so that people know what God's like, we hide. We get under a bull and we go, we don't really want any trouble here. We don't want people to to know that we're Christians. We just kind of want to put our heads down and do our thing under the radar. And Jesus is saying, that is not what you're intended for. You are not meant to just kind of skate by through life, just doing the stuff that you want to do without any trouble of being light. This is who you are. So you are supposed to be shining in a way that helps people know who God is. Now, why do we do that? We do it because we're scared. We do it because we know that by being light, we will be persecuted. The previous verses actually indicate that. That's one of the Beatitudes. There, there will be persecution for those who are faithful to God. When, when Jesus is described as light in John's gospel, it, it says it like this, light has come into the world, but the darkness resists it because it prefers darkness. So, so there's this tendency in, in the world in which we live where light will shine and it's beautiful and it's good, but the darkness says, no, 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 we don't want that here. And so what do Christians do? We're light. We just don't want anyone to know about it. Let's put it under a bushel. Let's put it under, let's hide that feature about us. Jesus is reminding us that he wants us to be the light of the world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, pastor during the time of uh, Nazi Germany, he puts it like this, a community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. If you're following Jesus, you, you do not hide your distinctiveness as a believer. If you're doing that, you're not really following the Lord. He wants us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He wants us to go out into the world with the message of Christianity and the result of it in in our very presence, in our very being, and for that to actually be a good thing. Uh, The outcome then shows up in verse 16. Here's what happens when we live in this way. It says, in the same way, as salt being a preservative and being a savory flavor, in the same way as light shining from a city on a hill or a lamp in a home, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. There's this missional feature to being a Christian. You go out into the world and you live in a way that actually draws people into praise, not, not of us. We're not trying to say, hey, look at us. We're salt, we're light, we're awesome. No, no, no. There's a humility about it. We're poor in spirit. We're meek. But, but, it, but our presence is resulting in people recognizing the glory of God. Why are they different? What makes them different? What makes them like this? What makes them so beautiful and attractive? Well, when we live in that way, people will see our good deeds and they will glorify God, our Father in heaven. That's what we want. That's what Jesus wants. He wants us to live in this beautiful way. Well, this then is the calling that Christians have. Jesus is telling us that this is what it means to be one of his followers. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You have this ability then to join Jesus in his mission. He is making himself known in the world and you become his representative. This is what he wants us to do. He prays a prayer toward the end of his earthly ministry that underlines this point. This is from John chapter 17. 
He's praying and he says, my prayer, this is Jesus, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. He's praying for his followers and he's saying, I don't want them to to just huddle together. I don't want them to just be removed from the world. I don't just want to take them away to this position of safety. I want you, Heavenly Father, to protect them from the evil one. But just like you sent me, I'm sending them into the world. So make them yours. Make them distinctly like you so that they could be good in the world. That's what Jesus wants for us. He wants us to be a people who are on mission with him. Now, one of the things that I've been wrestling with is how exactly does this look, right? Like, how, how do we do this? I mean, I, I think it's, it's clear that we should because Jesus has made it clear. It's really not, it's not up for debate, right? We're, we're either doing it or, in his words, we're worthless and foolish. Like, we're either doing this and, you know, trying to live up to this vocation that Jesus has given us or... We're no longer good, and we're no longer functioning in the way that we're intended to. But the question still remains for me is, so how do we do this? And what sort of vibe should this have? So if we're going to go into the world as salt and light, what would that look like exactly? Well, I think that a lot of Christians are concerned with cultural engagement, and we do want to be salt and light. But unfortunately, a lot of Christians have kind of divorced cultural engagement from the Beatitudes. So the Beatitudes that came just before this paragraph, we want to engage in the world and we want the world to know that it's rotten, but we're not thinking as Christians. We're not behaving as Christians. We're not poor in spirit and meek and peacemakers and hungering and thirsting for the rightness of God. We're just condemning the world. What we need to learn how to do is how, how is it that we could be salt and light that display the beauty of Christ himself? How could we be the blessed Christians described in that earlier paragraph, engaging in the way that we're being told to engage with the world here in this paragraph. I think it's interesting. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones had this insight 63 years ago. So he was preaching on this, and it became a published work, but, it, but he was, this is 63 years ago, and he's kind of wrestling with cultural engagement in his moment, thinking back on the, the history leading up to, to his moment right there. He said, we have spent the last 50 years engaging in political, social, and economic conversations. He's just thinking through as a Christian, he's going back and he's looking at all these different things. And he's going, churches have really invested heavily in this. There have been pronouncements made. There are resolutions that have been drafted by assemblies and denominations. Um, And then he says, but what was the result? So we talked a lot about cultural engagement. That's what he's saying back then. We've done all this work on how to make the world a better place, and we've had our conferences, and we've drafted different, you know, responses as Christians. And he goes, but but what has been the, the result? And he goes, unfortunately, it's worse now than it used to be. All that talk didn't result in real change. And he kind of came up with this idea. I wonder why that is. And he, he proposed this. Maybe we haven't actually done what God is calling us to do. Maybe we haven't actually behaved as salt and light in the world. We've talked. We've talked an awful lot. 
but we have not become the blessed people described in the Beatitudes who are engaging productively in the world. He puts it like this. uh, We'll throw this up on the screen. He says, I believe that people are watching us very closely because we claim to be Christian. They're watching our reactions to people and to the things that they say and do to us. And he says, the Christian with the Beatitudes reacts differently, or we should at least put it like this. They should react differently. When confronted with world events, wars, and rumors of wars, with calamities, pestilences, and all these other things, they are not over-anxious, troubled, and irritable. The world is, but Christians are not. The Christian is essentially different. When you think about that, and you think about how we are behaving in the midst of a pandemic, how we're behaving in this cultural moment, can you say with honesty that that is true of you. As a, as a person with the Beatitudes, you are responding differently to the cultural moment than the rest of the world. You're not over-anxious, you're not troubled, you're not irritable. You trust in the Lord himself and in his work in human history. That's what Martin Lloyd-Jones, 63 years ago, was saying. That's what we have to do as Christians. We have to figure out, how do we get there? And here was his suggestion. He, he made it very personal. He said, if I'm going to do this, I have to rehearse the Beatitudes daily. If I'm going to live like this, different from the rest of the world, I'm going to need to remind myself of who I am in Christ repeatedly. Christians, let's make that our ambition. So as we think through what we should care about right now and how we should structure our time and our energy and our resources, let's make it our ambition to be Christ-like. Let's remind ourselves over and over again of the Beatitudes, of what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ. Poor in spirit, meek, peacemaking, gentle, lovers of mercy, people who can be persecuted but but return that persecution with blessing. Let's be Christ-like and let's make it our ambition to be like Him. So, As we think through the cultural moment that we're going through, I really want us as a church to embrace this God-given vocation. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let's go and be that for God's glory. Now, let me spend a few minutes now talking about why this shows up so prominently in our church and the way that we kind of organize. When I think about what Jesus was really all about, as he was calling disciples to himself and organizing them for the future, it, how he did this really informs how I think about church. And this is true for me personally, and a lot of our leaders are in agreement on this thing, but we want to be the kind of church that sends you, right? We, we, gathering is really, really important. We do not forsake the gathering together where we come and we worship and we sing, we open the word together, we encourage each other, but we do that not as, that's not the end goal. Like the, the end goal is not for us to just get a ton of people in here. I mean, that's a wonderful byproduct of following Jesus. But the end goal is we want to send you out of here so that you might do life on mission with Jesus. Because that's what he's about. He, we are ascending church. When we think about the philosophy of ministry that we have, we do this for the sake of when we send you out every week. In fact, that's how we end our services, right? You're not dismissed. Good grief. You didn't just check off your church thing and go, yeah, I got that done this week. My Christian stuff is done. 
So now I'm going to go home. I'm going to watch some football. I'm going to go to work. But all the Christian stuff is in the rear view mirror. Like that's done now. No, we say, look, you're here and it's a big deal that you're here, but we're going to leverage this for the sake of you going out and being salt and light. We want you to go into the world and we want you to represent Christ. And we really do believe that people are going to come to know Jesus in a saving way, not because of what we do here on a Sunday morning, but because of what you do throughout the course of your work week. Think about this. Where do you spend the lion's share of your time? Where do you spend the majority of the resources that you have, your time and your energy? How much of that is given to church? An hour and a half? Your commute here, your time here, the conversations afterwards, hour and a half, maybe, you know, maybe upwards of five hours if you're in a group and, you know, discipling other people or whatever the case might be. But you spend the majority of your life at your place of employment and at your home. If discipleship doesn't touch those two environments, we're not doing it right. If you're not doing your life as salt and light in those two places, we're not behaving in the way that Christ wants us to. So as a church, we organize and we say, we want to equip and train people to go and be salt and light. We, We want you to show up at work this week and for people to feel like, the presence of the Lord is here. Now, they might not even have that language, but when they see you coming, they should be thinking, something good's about to happen. The salt is here. The light is here. The, the representative of Christ is here. They're going to make the organization better. The relationships are going to be improved upon. Life is going to be better because this Christian is a part of it. In your home, as you're spending time around your table and with, with neighbors and friends. I mean, we don't want you to live in isolation. We want you to live in community. And we want other people from your neighborhoods to, to come into your home and to see what it looks like to live faithfully for Christ. We are a missional church. We want you to join Jesus in his mission. He is inviting you to be salt and light. And I pray that you would join him gladly. Let's be his church. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking that you would help each and every one of us embrace the identity that you've given us. Help us to be salt. Help us to be light. Help us to rehearse the Beatitudes routinely so that we might remember this posture that we should have, this vibe that we should have as we interact with people. I pray that everything that we would do this week would be marked with a intentionality that we want to represent you well. We want to live beautifully before a watching world so that they might see our good deeds and glorify you. We want people to come to know you in a saving way. And so, Lord, we, we offer our lives to you. Help us to live for your glory. Help us to live in light of your mission. Help us to be your people for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.